Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we come now before you and we want to humble ourselves under the authority of your word. It is living, it is active, it is alive and powerful. Every word of yours is true. So, Father, we pray that you would. Send your spirit now to open our eyes, give us hearts to receive your truth this morning, that it would fall on fertile soil, and we pray that your word would have its work in us this morning, that we would be changed by it, we would be strengthened by it, and that ultimately we would be conformed more into the image of Christ. And so we say we need your wisdom. So teach us this morning for your glory. And for our everlasting joy and good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I think that if there were perhaps one word for describing what I am observing among many Christians today, as I, as I look at the church, as I look at uh, the world, as I look at the, the context in which we live, as I'm talking with others that I know in ministry and the places where they are serving and, and even just observing many Christians, even on social media uh, today, I think that one word I might use in describing many Christians would be the word frustrated. People are frustrated. They're frustrated with church church leaders, they're frustrated with the political system, they're frustrated with the judicial system, they're frustrated with other leaders, with news and media, with the trajectory of where it seems our culture and our country are headed. People are just frustrated. Do you sense that at all as well? And the reason, I think, or at least one of the reasons, is because we live in a world that is full of futility. That ever since the fall, ever since God has cursed the world because of sin and the creation was subjected to futility, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, this world is now frustrating. Because the world often doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to work as God intended it to work. And so you and I, we experience now these frustrations of futility in every single life, don't we? Every single area of life. We experience it in, in work. We experience it in relationships. We experience the frustration in this quest for joy and meaning and purpose in life. This frustration with money, frustration with the government, frustration with the natural order of things and things breaking and wearing down in this life and the injustices that we see in the world. We're just frustrated people. And while some of this frustration is understandable, 
right? It's okay to experience this inner tension and turmoil with the way that the world is. Sadly, what happens, it seems, for many is this frustration often leads to bitterness. It leads to pessimism, anger, anxiety, depression, and thus there are, in fact, many Christians, it seems, who are walking through life just angry with the world. Have you found that to be true? This life is frustrating. And so, what we've discovered here in Ecclesiastes is that the preacher is no stranger to this frustration either. Solomon, we've seen in his own quest for meaning and trying to understand why the way uh, the world is the way that it is and experiencing himself this futility, he too understands this temptation toward frustration as well. But instead of frustration, I, I think that if, if Solomon could choose his own words for describing how Christians should live, how we should think about these frustrations, how we should approach these frustrations in life, I think the two words that Solomon would use would be the words wisdom and joy. Wisdom and joy. Isn't that what we've seen? We've seen that how to live this life with wisdom, how to live this life with God's perspective in view, how to live with God at the center of our lives, fearing God, and to live this life with joy. That even though there is suffering and evil and hardship and frustration in life, that we can, in fact, enjoy the life that God has given to us. And so in chapter 8, what Solomon is going to do here now is he's going to walk us through a series of various frustrations and perplexities in life and as he does, so he's going to show us how to look at those, how to analyze those with wisdom. And then we'll see next time in chapter 9 that he's going to call us again to joy, to, to enjoy life. In fact, what we'll see, if you notice there at the end of chapter 9 in verses 7 to 10, it's actually the longest, strongest exhortation to joy that we've seen in this book. And so chapters 8 and 9... Solomon says, what we need is we need wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate these challenges, these frustrations, and we can do this, he says, with joy, with true and lasting joy and contentment. Now, what you may have noticed as, as we read this chapter a moment ago, you, you might have noticed the repetition of many of the same themes that we have seen already thus far in Ecclesiastes. Solomon has already uh, addressed many of these themes and ideas earlier in this book. And so, this part of Ecclesiastes, it may feel a bit repetitious. In fact, in, in light of that this week, I, I felt the, the added pressure um, to not preach a sermon that I've already preached in this study. But as I, as I thought about that more this week, as I thought about the repetition of this book, here, here is the thought I had. Test this. See if I'm right. If Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles, and it is, right? I hope it's in your Bible. And if we believe that every single word of this book is breathed out by God, it is without error, it is divine revelation, it's for our good and growth and godliness, then there must be a reason that God would inspire Solomon to be repetitious, right? 
In fact, I think the repetition of this book is part of its rhetorical power. And what I mean by that is that the repetition is actually good for us. Because these are things, these are truths that we need, beloved. And Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wants us to get them. He wants us to understand them. And so repetition is not a bad thing. And so may God give us grace and new insight as we, as we deal with these twin themes here that we've already seen of wisdom and joy. How to deal with these frustrations living in a world that's cursed with futility. So look there, in fact, in verse 1. Notice how Solomon begins this new section here. And he begins by highlighting yet again the supreme value of wisdom. Look there, verse 1. Notice it serves as sort of a, a, a heading for this entire section here. And he begins with these two rhetorical questions and this proverb to show us our need for wisdom in dealing with life under the sun. Look at verse 1. He says, who is like the wise? The answer, of course, is there's no one. There's no one like the wise. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Meaning, who can understand? Who can interpret the, the, the world with all of its frustrations and complexities? And then he says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, he's saying, who has, who has the skill in explaining, who has the skill in interpreting the difficulties of life, the hard things of life? And the answer Solomon gives really is only the wise. That while wisdom, it, it can't give us all the answers it is still to be pursued. It is still to be desired. It, it doesn't cancel out the frustrations of life, but it does help us to live with joy. In fact, notice the, the transforming effect that wisdom has in verse 1. He says, A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So notice here, he's saying wisdom has a, it has a transforming effect. Wisdom changes our countenance. Wisdom is visible to others. It, it stands out, he's saying. It, it, it shines. And he says the hardness of his face is changed. So again, wisdom, it, it, it transforms us. It is, it is seen by all. Think of Joseph before Pharaoh. Or Daniel, if you remember, before King Nebuchadnezzar. Their wisdom, it was seen it was seen by all. It's, it's easy to spot the wise, Solomon is saying. It's written on their faces. And so instead of, notice, hardness, wisdom makes us gentle. Wisdom makes us patient and kind. It, it displays the, the fruit of the Spirit. We won't be grumpy. We won't be bitter. We won't be hard. We won't be angry with the world. No, that's not what wisdom does. If we have wisdom, Solomon says, we will be radiating grace. We'll be radiating humility and joy. So let me ask, is that you? So Solomon isn't saying, just put on a happy face. But rather, he's saying, true wisdom, the wisdom that is centered on Christ, it changes us. It's seen. That's the benefit of wisdom. This is what we need. If we are going to live rightly in this world that is full of futility and frustrations, 
And then beginning, notice there in verse 2 and following, Solomon, he's going to offer us now several areas of life in which we need wisdom in order to deal with these frustrations of futility. So I, I want to highlight here three frustrations I see. I find these to be very relevant. And then we're going to see how Solomon says we are to respond to these frustrations with wisdom and joy. So here are the three frustrations. Number one, let me give them to you. Number one, the frustration of dealing with imperfect governing authorities. Verses two to nine. Second, the frustration of facing injustice in the world. Verses 10 and 11. And then finally, the frustration of what we'll call the unknown. Verses 16 and 17. And then we'll look at how we are to respond to these frustrations. So, first frustration. Number one, notice first, the frustration of imperfect governing authorities. Verses 2 to 9. And, and this, this first frustration Solomon deals with here, it relates to the frustration that we oftentimes face of having to submit to imperfect governing authorities. <laughs> is that not timely? I love how relevant the Bible is. Now again, we must remember that the context here in, in which Solomon is writing, it was in an ancient Middle Eastern context. A world of kings, a world of monarchs, so it's, it's, it's very different from our current political system where we have a lot more political influence. But instead of assuming then that this isn't relevant for me, beloved, I actually think this is extremely relevant for, for us as well. How, how do we live with wisdom under governing authorities and specifically governing authorities that we may not agree with? that we may see are imperfect and flawed. And in verses 2 and 3, notice Solomon gives us here two commands for dealing with imperfect governing authorities. But if, if I had to summarize these verses here in verses 2 to 9, I think what Solomon would say is what we need is we need discernment and we need wisdom. We need discernment and we need wisdom. We need to be discerning and we need to be wise as it relates to these governing authorities. In fact, let me show you what I mean. Look there in verse 5. He says, whoever keeps a command, this is the command of the king, will know no evil thing. So we are to keep the king's command, he says, but we do not participate in evil. Verse 5, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So how do we know when is the proper time and the just way? Solomon says we need discernment and we need wisdom in order to know. Because there is a time, as we'll see, to obey. Verse 2, and there is a time to disobey. Verse 5. And we need to know when's the right time for both. We need wisdom. Notice Solomon's two commands, how we relate to governing authorities. Command number one, he says, we obey the king. We obey the king. Verse two, I say, 
Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So Solomon says very clearly under no uncertain terms that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. We are to keep the king's command. And I, re- I recognize that we bristle at that. As sinners, we bristle at that because we don't like sinfully. We don't like authority. But also, I recognize we do as Americans. We do as Protestants. We have a long history of defying authority. But Solomon says we are to obey. We are to submit to, the, to kings and to governments We are to submit to rulers and authorities. We are to obey the king. Why? Verse 2. Because of God's oath to him. Now, you might see a a footnote there in the bottom of your page. At least my my translation, the ESV, has that. Because scholars will agree that the the Hebrew here is difficult to translate. And so verse 2 Perhaps a better translation or a more literal translation would be because of your oath to God. So which is it? Is it we submit because of God's oath to him, the king, or do we submit because of our oath to God? And I'm, I'm going to go with the more, I think, literal translation here because of your oath to God. But I think that whatever translation you decide, the idea here is still the same. And here's what I mean. Meaning that God has instituted, he has established governing authorities. And he has put these governing authority structures in place here under the sun. And therefore, our obedience and submission to God is actually seen in our obedience and submission to these governing authorities. Our oath to God. And the rest of the Bible is very clear on this as well. The New Testament even, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The reason we are to submit to them is because they have been put in place by God Himself, and it is submission to Him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake because of your oath to God, because of your obedience to God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, the king, as supreme, or to governors, so lesser authorities, and we could add any authority there, bosses, teachers, parents, subject. So the Bible is very clear. We are to submit. We are to obey. We are to keep the king's command. And note that this is all in light of the fact that these governing authorities may in fact be corrupt. They may be tyrannical. They may be imperfect. We, we won't always agree. One commentator writes, there are hints throughout this passage that the king in question may or may not exercise his governance in a godly way. And so even though they are ordained and instituted by God for our good, for our human flourishing, to resist, restrain evil, 
punish evil, they, they are flawed, and they can be corrupted by human sin and wickedness. And this, Solomon says, is often how it is in this world. Under the sun. In fact, notice how, how bleak is the political picture here in verses 2 to 9. Look at verse 3. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. I mean, this, this is absolute power. I mean, in this case, the king, the government, I mean, they're wielding unquestionable power. And he may not be open to your input. Look at verse 4. For the word of the king is supreme, and who can say to him, what are you doing? Unquestionable power. And oftentimes, look at verse 9, he can use that power to hurt people. All this I have observed, verse 9, while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So this, it seems, we're talking here about ungodly, imperfect, flawed, even at times, wicked governing authorities. And how are we to respond? Keep the king's command. Now, if I'm, if I'm correct in assuming that Solomon is the author of this book, then I think, I think who he might have in mind here as he writes this book toward the end of his life is the succession of kings that are going to follow after him. And uh, you don't have to read very far in First and Second Kings to see that there were some pretty ungodly rulers. But also, just think about those commands of both Peter and Paul as well as they're writing. Who's in authority? The evil Emperor Nero. Burning down half of the city and blaming it on Christians. Slaughtering them. And yet, the command is obey and submit. Command number two. Honor the king. Honor the king. Look at verse three. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Now, what does that mean? In other words, he's saying, I think, don't get in a hurry to leave. Don't try and leave too quickly. I think this is a warning here about disrespecting the king. It's about being disloyal to the king. What one commentator writes, he says, in this cultural context, a hasty departure from the throne room was really a sign of disrespect, a way of turning one's back on authority. Think of, for example, the story of Esther. Remember the story? She's, she enters into the presence of the king, right? And she says, if I perish, I perish. It was a big deal to go into the presence of the king. And Solomon says, don't be hasty. Don't be flippant. Show careful respect. Show careful honor to the king. In fact, look there in verse 3, he warns us here about the temptation then to rebel against this authority, to reject and resist this authority, especially when we don't agree. Look at verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand, meaning against the king, in an evil cause, or maybe a, a better translation might be a bad cause, 
in an ungodly way, in an unrighteous way, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, don't join the mutiny. Don't join the rebellion because it may not go well for you. He does whatever he pleases. No, instead, wisdom says, obey. Wisdom says, honor. And already, I think we see here just some implications for us this morning. I mean, first of all, notice how these two commands to obey and honor, they have a Godward focus, don't they? That honor and respect toward governing authorities, even ungodly ones, is actually honor and respect toward God himself who has placed them there. But I think another implication is that the call here is is to be discerning. The call here is the need for wisdom. Not only for theological reasons to honor God, but notice very practical reasons as well because to resist and dishonor the king may mean you lose your head. Verse 9, the king has power over man to his hurt. This may not be in your best interest. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That you may lead a peaceful and quiet life. A peaceful and quiet life. And then, in fact, Paul actually has an evangelistic reason in mind. Because he says in verse 3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, we show honor and respect to governing authorities because not only does it commend the gospel by the way that we honor God in our submission to governing authorities, but because we want to live in peaceful, quiet lives so that we might actually have opportunity to share the gospel. Keep the big picture in mind. So Solomon says we are to honor and obey the king. This is wisdom. Now, that raises a very, very good question. Is there ever a time to disobey the king? Is civil disobedience ever permissible? And the Bible is abundantly clear on that as well. In fact, Solomon is clear on that. Look there at verse 5. So verses 2 and 3, obey the honor of the king. Verse 3, be careful about how you resist his authority because we're reminded he does whatever he pleases and he has supreme authority. Verse 4, but, verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. So this obedience, Solomon says, it has limits. So if we aren't called to sin, then Scripture says we are called to submit. But if the king's command would lead us to sin, then we submit to the higher authority who is God. So verse 5, notice, we keep his command, but not if it means participating in something that is evil. So yes, 
There is a time to resist. Yes, there is a time to protest. Yes, there is a time to defy the king's orders. But the command is to obey and to honor up to the point where the Bible calls it sin. Where the Bible calls it sin. So how will we know when is the right time? When is the time to obey and when is the time to resist, and especially when sometimes it seems more gray than it does black and white? When does it cross the line? How will we know? Because sometimes it's hard to know. And Solomon says in verse 5, brothers and sisters, that is when we need wisdom. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. So in other words, he's saying we need wisdom sometimes to know how to respond rightly. Again, the call here is the need for discernment and wisdom. We need wisdom to know the righteous way. We need wisdom to know the just way to respond and how to navigate this relationship with imperfect governing authorities. So I think the exhortation here is be wise. It is be prudent. It is be thoughtful when dealing with governing authorities. Don't be hasty. Don't be dishonoring. Pray for wisdom to know when to speak, when to act. Count the cost. Know the proper time to oppose authority. And we need wisdom. Why? Because there is a lot of things about this that can be frustrating at times. And we may not always agree. This tension of living between two worlds, right? We may be uncertain about what to do or the outcome or what the future holds, and we may be powerless to control any of it. In fact, look here at verse 6. Solomon, notice, he mentions here our inability to control and know the future. He says, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So, yes, while we understand God's sovereign over, over the times, right? We saw that in chapter 3. A time for everything. And he puts kings and governments into power and places them in positions of power and controls even the reign of kings, Proverbs 21, verse 1 tells us. He is absolutely sovereign. And yet in verse 6, notice, man's trouble lies heavy on him. Why? Why, Why is he so troubled? Verse 7, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Meaning, it's heavy because he realizes it's ultimately outside of his control. We don't have ultimate control. In fact, in verse 8, we don't have power to sustain life. No man has power to retain the spirit. We don't have power over the day we die. Power over the day of death. Even, verse 8, we have no control over whether or not wars begin and when they will end. No, we are completely powerless. Ultimately. And so even though there may be a proper time to defy the king and the just way is clear, verse 9, it may mean our harm. And persecution, danger, death will come. 
If we take a stand, then listen, we have no control over what will happen to us. And brothers and sisters, we need wisdom for living in those days. And those days may be coming. And Solomon senses that frustration of relating and submitting to imperfect and just governing authorities. And he says, we need wisdom. But here's the second frustration. Look there. The frustration of facing injustice in the world. We see it in verses 10 and 11, and even in verse 14. Now, this is is a repeated theme that we've already seen in Ecclesiastes. Injustice. In the world. In fact, if you notice last week, look in chapter 7, verse 15, he says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I mean, that's just that's just, that's unjust, right? The the righteous suffering, dying young, the wicked living long and prospering in life. And so again, it's Solomon, he's picking back up here on this theme and, and observing here now again injustice that he sees in the world. But notice here in verses 10 and 11, it seems now to be the prospering of the wicked and injustice toward the righteous in both their life as well as their death. Look there at verses 10 and 11. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So verse 10, notice Solomon, he now observes the death of the wicked. I saw the wicked buried. So he has seen now some of the funerals of the wicked. The the unrighteous. And they they are being praised. They're being honored televised with pomp and circumstance. Verse 10, and while alive, they go in and out of the holy place. I mean, these guys are even being praised inside the church, the wicked, and outside the church, in the city. But then they die, verse 10, and the implication here is that even their funerals are bursting with praise. Undue honor. One commentator writes, he says, even though death is the great equalizer between the wicked and the righteous, we saw that in chapter 2, the wicked seem to prosper even in death. And it's all undeserved. And if Solomon observes that, he's frustrated. This also is vanity. Verse 10. So this is the dishonest prospering while the honest suffer. This is the cheater who gets an A while the kid who studies hard barely scrapes by with a C. This is the backbiter in the office who gets the promotion while the person of integrity is looked over. This is the prosperity gospel preacher who's fleecing his flock to comfort and sustain his own lifestyle. I mean, it's almost as if it pays to be wicked in life and death. Not only that, look at verse 11. They seem to get away with it. 
Look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. Meaning, justice, very often, it isn't executed quickly. And, and sometimes they even get off with it. Verse 11. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So Solomon, it seems he's lamenting that justice doesn't come quickly enough for the wicked. And, and as justice is stalled, it seems as if evil is just continuing to go on and on and on and on because man's heart is fully set on evil. And so we might conclude then that godliness doesn't matter. Right? Or look down at verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this also is vanity. So sometimes, Solomon says, the righteous get treated like the wicked, and the wicked get treated like the righteous, and it's all in vain. And friends, we don't have to look very hard to see this is true in our own day as well. Where the wicked get treated like the righteous and the righteous get treated like the wicked. You want an example? If you don't think this is true in our day, then just take a stand for the biblical definition of marriage as God defines it. One man and one woman. And watch. And that definition is now considered evil. It's considered dangerous. If you believe that, if you defend that, you're wicked. While the wicked are being praised for being courageous and righteous. Author David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, he says, our culture makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. And that, Solomon says, is unjust. And this is the feudal world under the sun in which we live. I mentioned it last week, but in Psalm 73... Why don't you hold, hold your place there in Ecclesiastes. Look at Psalm 73 for a moment. And then I want you to hold your place in Psalm 73 because we're actually going to come back there in just a sec. Psalm 73, the psalmist says this in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's, he's actually envying the wicked. And their prosperity. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. So they seem to have good lives. And I mean, they're fat and sleek. They're prospering. They're not facing trouble like other people are facing. Back in verse 11, look there. They even mock God and the righteous. Look what he says in verse 11. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. Beloved, have you seen this to be true? 
Does this not describe the wicked today? They're prospering, getting away with evil, and if that bothers you, it bothers Solomon as well. It's all vanity. And thus, the only conclusion, it seems, is that godliness and integrity don't matter. And that can be frustrating. And just keep in mind this. The Bible never promises that righteousness will ever reign under the sun in this life. And that can be extremely frustrating and it can feel extremely futile. But before we look at our response, let me give you one more frustration. Frustration number three the frustration of the unknown. The frustration of the unknown. Verses 16 and 17. Look there. Then I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done under, on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. So he, he's, he's trying hard to search out the answers to these things. Why, why, do, why do bad things happen in this life to good people and good things happen to bad people? Why is there so much injustice in the world? In fact, he's searching so diligently, notice, it's almost as if he's getting no sleep. And then, he says, I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out. Even though a wise person claims to know, he cannot find it out. So this is the frustration of what we call the unknown. We don't like the unknown, do we? <laughs> Many of us are planners. I mean, we, we have an agenda, meticulous calendars. We, we want to make plans. We want to map out our lives, don't we? We hate the unknown. We just need a little bit more information. And there is so much about this life we don't know. The political landscape is unknown. The day of our death is unknown. What tomorrow will bring is unknown. We, we might get sick. We might, might be painful. It might, there might be suffering. There might be heartache. We may die. We may die today. We, we just don't know. And in verse 17, look there, Solomon is considering the work of God. He says in verse 17, then I saw all the work of God. So he, he knows that God is sovereign. He knows he controls the seasons and the times of our life. Chapter 3, right? Solomon has made that point over and over again. God is overseeing our lives. He's governing our lives. He's controlling our lives under the sun from his throne above the sun. And so nothing in this life happens outside of His sovereign jurisdiction. We know that, right? Remember the, the tapestry illustration I gave you several weeks ago where God, He sees the big picture. And every stitch of our lives, He is sovereignly weaving together in this beautiful uh, tapestry. But to us, it just looks like this tangled mess of threads, right? But from His view, every stitch is purposeful, but that's not our perspective under the sun, and we can't always know God's ways. 
fact, look at verse 17. He says it three times in one verse. Man cannot find it out. So wisdom even has its limits. God oversees it all. He has a purpose for it all, a meaning for it all. It will be beautiful in its time, but it is impossible to know fully and exactly what God is up to. I was thinking about the Shoeys this week as I was driving to St. Louis to see them, what I would say to them. And we, we might be able to discern a few things God is doing. We, we, might, we might have some general categories in our minds for a theology of suffering in this life, but there are 10,000 things we don't know. No matter how wise you may be, no matter how much you may know. And then the chapter ends. <laughs> so what are we to do? What, what are we to do when we don't know? When we see injustice go unpunished? When we can't seem to control the political landscape when what are we to do when it all seems futile do we just become frustrated and cynical and bitter and despair at the senselessness and randomness of evil curse god what do we do how do we live wisely and i see two responses solomon calls us to in our text and they aren't new at all. <laughs> but again, beloved, we need to be reminded of this again and again and again and again. Here are the two responses. Response number one, we fear God, verses 12 and 13. And response number two, we find joy. We fear God and we find joy. This is application. Look at response number one. Look there, verses 12 and 13. We fear God. The only proper response to these frustrations, to the unknowns of life, the, the unanswered questions of why, is to fear God. And so Solomon, he turns yet again to this same theme of fearing God. We saw it in chapter 3. We saw it in chapter 5. We saw it in chapter 7. We're going to see it again at the end in chapter 12. And now we see it again that this is the proper response to the frustrations of life. We fear God. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Oh, that's frustrating. That's injustice. Then notice, yet I know. Yet I know, he says, that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. They fear God. And in verse 13, not only will it end, not end, or it end well for the God-fearers, but look at verse 13. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So even though this is the way it seems in this world, Solomon knows 
Notice, he knows that in the end, it will be well for those who fear God, but for the wicked, it won't be well. Philip Ryken writes, Solomon believes what he cannot see. He's living by faith, is what he's doing. I know. He's living by faith. He believes what he cannot see. He writes that one day all will be well for everyone who lives in the fear of God. Meaning that what we can see right now here under the sun, it isn't all that there is. No, there, there is an eternal judge who sits on his throne above the sun and he sees all and he knows all and he governs all and he judges all and all will stand before him in judgment and then, then, he says, it won't go well for the wicked. His days won't be prolonged eternally. No, but it will go well for those who fear God. And the wise live like they know that. And they believe it with all their hearts. Who are the wise? Who are the righteous? It's those who fear God. The righteous are only righteous because they live by faith. Romans 1.17 they recognize they have no righteousness of their own with which to stand. They're trusting in the righteous one who's coming and he will judge. I told you, look, look again at Psalm 73 for a moment because there's an important turning point, important transition that happens in this psalm. I love this psalm. Go to it often. In verses 1 to 16 of Psalm 73, the psalmist, as I said, he's lamenting at the prosperity of the wicked. He's even envying them. But then, in verse 17, a major transition happens. In verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, why the wicked prosper, it seemed to be a wearisome task. Solomon say it's vanity. Until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. The end of the wicked. So what changed? What happened? Here's what happened. Divine revelation. Verse 17, he enters into the sanctuary of God. He enters into the house of worship. He hears the revelation of God in the corporate gathering and he understands the end of the wicked. And now he knows and he believes it and he trusts it and he puts his hope in the sovereign judge who says, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord, and he fears God. Beloved, the wise have to take the long view. And I mean the eternally long view. And so the psalmist and Solomon they trust divine revelation, the wisdom of God as more reliable than what they can see and what they can observe with their eyes under the sun. And ultimately, justice will be done and the righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be punished. And beloved, I pray that we would have the same faith to trust the sovereign, wise hand of God. So how do we deal with these frustrations? We deal with them by fearing God. Finally, last response. 
we find joy. We find joy. We, Solomon says we are to be joyful. Joyful? Yes. Joyful. That even though we live in a crooked world filled with sinners, filled with injustice, filled with corrupt politicians, filled with unanswered questions, rather than becoming bitter, rather than becoming angry, rather than leading to despair, he says, Solomon says, we are to be joyful. Did you notice that in verse 15? Look there. So after observing the vanity of verse 14, that sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, rather than trying to explain away all the injustices in the world, look at verse 15, what he says. The preacher exhorts us to find joy. Look at that. He says, and I commend joy. Now, why isn't that verse of Ecclesiastes memorized more often? I mean, that is coffee mug worthy. I commend joy. So what do we do in a world of powerful kings and wicked men and unanswered questions? Solomon says we rejoice. Now does that seem odd to anybody else? How are we able to rejoice? Look at verse 15. I commend joy for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. Now listen, there are two ways you can interpret that verse. There's two ways to read that verse. Number one, you can read it as a pessimist. You can read it like Eeyore. It's my favorite character in Winnie the Pooh, right? You can read it as a glass half empty kind of person that says, let's just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Nothing matters. This is as good as it gets. Or, and I think this is the way Solomon intends you to read verse 15, you can read that verse with a Godward focus. To see these things in life as good gifts from God to be enjoyed. What things? Well, look there. Things like food. Drink. Toil. What you do with your hands. I mean, he's mentioned these before, right? But I, I tried to think of some more this week in light of maybe the season we're in. Beautiful fall leaves. Turkey hunting, Carrie, right? Thanksgiving ham and turkey and dressing we're about to go enjoy together. And we're to enjoy them and we're to see them as blessings to be enjoyed and to praise the one from whom all blessings flow. And so it's almost as if Solomon is saying, hear me, stop being so overwhelmed about all the perplexities and problems in the world and start enjoying the life that God has given you. In fact, I think he's saying to us to spend more time being grateful and thankful and joyful and amazed at the good gifts he gives us than be frustrated with the problems of the world. Now, that doesn't mean they don't bother us. It doesn't mean we're indifferent or we're passive or we don't care. But it does mean 
that we recognize his good gifts and that all things are in his hands. They're not in ours, thank God. And we can trust his sovereign plan knowing his will will be ultimately accomplished and we don't deserve any of the blessings. We are sinners in need of grace. In fact, look at verse 11. Verse 11 is what described us. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Beloved, prior to our conversion, that was you and me. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the air, the sun that is now at work in or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy. And so we're able to rejoice. Yes, we rejoice in these everyday blessings, the good gifts he gives us, but we rejoice in something much greater. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and that soon, one day, our king will return and he will punish all evil and he will right every wrong and he will wipe every tear away from our eyes and Satan will be vanquished. And so we rejoice in the good gifts now. Enjoying the life God has given to us. We're going to see that next week. Oh, so timely for Thanksgiving, by the way. Because this life is brief. It's momentary. This week, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, David Davis, he had his birthday this week. Happy birthday, David. And and uh, he, he, was, he, was, he posted something about just thankful for all the, the, the happy birthday wishes. And then he said something that really struck me. He said, 70 years came way too fast. And I thank the Lord for every one of them. We celebrate these days. But beloved, we celebrate that day that is coming. And all these good gifts point to that eternal reward that's coming. And this is only possible because of the cross. And so we rejoice in the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of God revealed. It's foolishness for the world. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. Where we For exist written, to delight in the God, the wise, display His grace, and, and will declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear.